everybody. Easy. Let's do that again. Good evening, everybody. Easy. So glad you're all here as we open up the Word of God. I'm extremely excited to be able to preach again with no holds barred and with with uh, complete indemnity because I'm drugged up. So if I say anything uh, really bad or illegal or inappropriate, I can just blame drugs. So you uh, need to buckle in and get ready for a big one as we open up to Revelation. So please go there. Chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. As I find my place as well. If I have not had the pleasure of getting to uh, uh, meet you yet, I uh, would love to afterwards. Of course, any of the regulars here would love to meet you if you're a, uh, a visitor or if you're looking for a church. We are a, a brand new church plant out of uh, Hope Reformed Baptist Church up in Logan, and so we are. Uh, we are passionate about the gospel and passionate about seeing uh, uh, all of Christ's disciples matured and uh, also passionate about the gospel so that it can be furthered and the kingdom of Christ can be extended. Amen? Amen. And we believe, especially that we do that, we see Christ's kingdom uh, extend, uh, expanded through the preaching of God's word. Uh, as, as the word of God is understood, as it is obeyed, as it uh, expands, in fact, you can track this through the book of Acts. Um, uh, it's, it's my Saturday night habit to try and read uh, most of or some of the book of Acts to sort of get myself into the spirit for Sunday. Um, and it's uh, 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 very frequent in the book of Acts. Instead of saying, and the church grew, or and many, many more people got saved, uh, or the gospel is spreading, the, uh, the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, simply says, and the word of God multiplied. The word of God is so central to what Christ is doing through the building of this church. And so we come here expecting that as we preach it, we understand it, we uh, implement it into our lives. God is doing amazing, amazing things. So look to verse 9 now in Revelation chapter 1. We have uh, already last week gone through verses 1 through 8 of uh, the first chapter. <coughs> and what we've been, uh, 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 these first two sermons really are just, introductory sermons, because we're going to be doing, uh, uh, going through the seven letters that Christ speaks to his church. But before we get to them, we wanted to lay the foundation of who is it that is speaking to the church? Uh, in what context is the church first receiving this message from Jesus that he spoke through the seven letters? How does Christ see us as the church to whom he speaks in those seven letters? With what intensity and in what spirit and tone should we be hearing uh, the, the, the rebukes and the encouragements and the comforts and the exhortations that are in those letters. So we're starting, uh, we, we started last week, verse 1 through verse 8 in chapter 1, and we were introduced to Jesus Christ, the great prophet, priest, and king. We were introduced to John uh, 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 briefly. We have met the triune God who speaks through the word of God, and that word of God is all about Jesus Christ. We have seen that we, the church, are those who Jesus has freed from our sins by his blood and who he has made a kingdom of priests to God by raising to life forevermore. Tonight, John's going to tell us a little bit about himself and also a whole lot about the Jesus who is speaking to us. And then starting next week, we'll start seeing what it is precisely that he is saying. So look at verse 9 as we read from verse 9 to verse 20. I, John, your brother and partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And, on, uh, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth, and from his face rather, uh, uh, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, there we are, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fe fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. I have therefore, uh, uh, therefore the right therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless this reading in our midst this evening. Amen. Well, as we come to Revelation, you have to be expected for a whole lot of imagery and symbolism and fantastical sort of uh, uh, things that are explained to us as we see. If we did the whole book, which we might be doing, if we did the whole book, we'd be seeing dragons fighting women in the, in the, in the, in the heavens. Uh, stars falling to earth and, and all sorts of beasts and magnificent things. This is a very colourful uh, book that is filled with imagery because it is communicating to us the greatest and deepest realities that there are. This is God communicating to us the deep and true realities of our world that we do not see simply with the eyes, but we need God to tell it to us. So we're going to start in verse 9. And look at this. First of all, John is telling us that he is a partner with us. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John wants to encourage his readers, think of the first century church that was getting this, those who were undergoing harsh persecution and difficult tribulation. John wanted to encourage his readers that God did not keep his best men out of the way of suffering. John was the apostle. It is likely that he is one of the last, or the last living apostle when he writes this. He is the, 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 the one person we might think should have a right out of suffering, out of persecution. He was Jesus' right-hand man. He was Jesus' best friend. He was the authoritative scripture writer. He was the anointed one of God. And yet, John's encouragement to the Christians is that even he, like they, are not free from suffering and from persecution. God does not spare his best men and his generals from the heat of the fight. In fact, all of the apostles, except for John, who are now reading that, all of the apostles died horrible, painful, butchering deaths at the hands of their executors. John is the only one who seemed to live onto a long old age and then die as an old man. 
But he was here on the, uh, the, the prison island of Patmos. If you're uh, uh, at all familiar with the uh, 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 American island of Alcatraz, it's a, basically a large rock in the middle of a San Francisco bay, and it was a, a perfect prison island because you, it's hard to get on or off except for special charter. It's very similar to that. John is in the middle of the Mediterranean on a large rock island that he's been exiled to because, church history tells us, Nero tried to burn him alive in oil and he didn't die. And he was just swimming around in the oil in the middle of the Colosseum, giving everybody the, uh, the shakes and uh, making them very much afraid and superstitious. They were afraid of what he would do to them, so they simply tied him up and sent him far away to the island of Patmos. And he was there for the testimony that he, he tells us here in verse 9. He was there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was there, sent as an exiled prisoner to Patmos, because he was preaching the gospel and refused to be silenced. We see that in Acts 5. He refuses to be silenced at the preaching of the word. Then he also is, uh, they're of course being called religious heretics, right? Because they're preaching the resurrection, which the, the religious people of the day, uh, both Greek and Jew, did not want to believe in. They thought that it was a heresy to be saying that this Jesus was in fact the resurrected Messiah. And so they were being uh, called heretics for that. That was part of the reason he was arrested. He was also arrested on political terms because the Christians were accused of being uh, unfaithful to Caesar. They were not bending the knee to the emperor of Rome because he was the only Lord of all lords. And when you were a Christian, you were saying that Jesus was the Lord above all lords. So they were arrested also often on political uh, threats. In fact, in Acts 16, we see that one of the, uh, uh, the, the complaints against the church, against the Christians, as they were evangelizing, they were turning the world upside down. That's what a few believers, caught on fire with the gospel, inflamed by the Holy Spirit, do to a pagan world like ours. It turns it upside down, and they don't like it. He was therefore taken, arrested, thrown onto this prison rock, and he continues to do the very thing that got him in, in prison. Probably none of us have ever been in prison or uh, arrested in any uh, uh, sense of the word for preaching or holding to our Christian beliefs. Unless some of us have been uh, migrants from the third world or, or very uh, highly persecuted country, I'm going to guess that none of us have actually had that occur. Uh, maybe the closest thing we've ever had was Facebook prison. Have you ever been put in Facebook jail? If you haven't, you're not posting enough about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you need to fix up your act. But Facebook prison is up, up in there. I, would, uh, I, I can amen what, what John's going through here, the pain of being in prison for the Lord God. Uh, Facebook prison is pretty much, uh, they tell you you, can, you have to stop posting and you're not allowed to keep on commenting and you can't have as much engagement and we're not going to show your content to as much people because you said something that was uh, against our community guidelines or whatever the heck they say. Uh, and and the, the aim of it is, well, the same as what John's time on, the, on Papos was supposed to be. The aim of it was supposed to tell the person who's in the prison, I, I did something wrong, I've said something the wrong way, I said the wrong thing, I'm going to go out into society and act better. I'm going to change my ways and I'm going to stop doing the thing that got me thrown in prison. Well, John tells us that he's in prison on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And what we're going to see him continue to preach is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He keeps on preaching the very thing that got him locked up. Because he knows, as we ought to know, 
He knows that opposition to the gospel is never a message from God to tone it down. It's a sign that you've interrupted Satan's sleep pattern and he wishes to stop you. And so he sends that persecution. But we will not be, this church will never be, a church that is a comfort to the devil. We will not let him keep on hitting his snooze button. We plan to march heavy-footed, very loudly, against the gates of hell, Sunday by Sunday. We will not be those who say, we will abide by social norms and rules. We will acknowledge that we are just one voice in a pluralistic society. We understand that we need to be careful with our words, or we won't be given a seat at the proverbial table. We won't be too preachy. We don't expect the fruitful uh, to be fruitful necessarily. We just aim to be kind and faithful. Rather, what we do say as a church, and I hope that you amen this in your heart, what we do say is that this earth belongs to King Jesus. His truth is the only truth. His gospel is the only gospel of salvation. The Bible is the only true sacred scripture. His plan for history is the only way history will go. The darkness is fading away and the devil has no defense against the unleashed preaching of the gospel. Therefore, we will let it fly. We need to follow John's example. That is what he wants us to do. He's saying, I'm just like you. I'm a partner in this with you. Follow in my footsteps. We will follow Christ's example. Too many people are unsaved. We must seek and save the lost with our bold proclamation of the gospel and we will not Stop. Whether they persecute us, kill us, or exile us, all of which is pretty unlikely in the current temperature that we're in, at least the exiling and the killing. But though they persecute us, we will continue to lovingly bear witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, exalts the saints who became martyrs, saying this, They have conquered the dragon, that is, Satan, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved their lives, not even unto death. John is our great example here. And he is our partner in this kind of lifestyle. So look at three things that he says in verse 9. That he is a partner with us in. He says he is a partner with us in the tribulation. He is a partner with us in the kingdom. And he is a partner with us in the patient endurance. First of all, the tribulation. This is not referring, this phrase, the tribulation, is not referring to a particular period of intense persecution and judgment being poured out on the earth that we do here in some other parts of the New Testament referred to as a great tribulation or, or things like that. That is not what he's referring to when he talks about the great tribulation or the tribulation that he's undergoing. Rather, he is talking about the same thing he wrote down in John 16. The same thing Jesus told us is a part of every Christian's life. Jesus said that all Christians in this world will face tribulation. This refers to the fact that, that Satan is always and ever on the attack against the church and against individuals throughout the whole church age. Between Jesus rising from the dead and going to heaven, between, and until he comes back again, Satan will be in a limited capacity... Though bound, he will be attacking the church, and so there will be such a thing as tribulation for all Christians. This tribulation is really, it's, it's the negative way to refer to the same period as the kingdom, which is what he says next. So he's a partner with us in the tribulation, 
and he's also a partner with us in the kingdom. Look at the, uh, he says there, the, the kingdom. This is, this is also a reference to the whole period between Jesus' ascension and when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the kingdom was established by Jesus in his first coming and is consummated in its eternal state at his second coming. So that to John and to the New Testament writers, the kingdom has already started. And even though the kingdom has future fulfillment and there's yet some things to happen, we should not get in the mindset of thinking that the kingdom is entirely future. It is not. It is actually largely present and breaking in into the future. Verse 6 of chapter 1 has already told us that Jesus freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Chapter 5 verse 10 says that Jesus has made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is what Revelation 20 is going to refer to as the millennium. The thousand year period. It's just a symbolic language of a large period of time between Jesus' two arrivals which, uh, which is, is characterized by Jesus reigning over the world and saving his people and judging his enemies. The third thing that John says that he's a partner with us in is the patient endurance. That is the ability to endure all of the sufferings in the tribulation and the ability to endure through obedience in all of the kingdom. And these three go together. The tribulation, being in the kingdom, and the patient endurance each, each person that is in Christ Jesus has each of those because each of them are in Christ Jesus. There's not a single person that is, that is unified to Christ by faith who is going to escape persecution and tribulation. And yet there's not a single person who's, who's, who's suffering that tribulation who does not also have the comfort that you are a part of Jesus' kingdom people. He has saved you. He has conquered your enemies. He will conquer all of his enemies. And though you die, he will bring you to himself in his heavenly kingdom. And we have the patient endurance. So that we might think that, that there are things on the horizon or things around the corner or things yet to come that we question whether or not we will have the endurance to say no to the temptations. We may worry about whether or not we have the endurance to push through that mission, that service, that ministry, that, those efforts that need to be made. And yet the promise is... In Jesus, there is sufficient patient endurance for every one of his kingdom people that are going through tribulation. And John is a partner with us in those very things. Whatever our labor, whatever our mission, whatever our service, whatever our life, whatever our suffering looks like, John, the last living apostle, is a partner with us in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance. Look now. To verse 10. So we see point two, Jesus speaks to his churches. In verse 10, we read, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Bergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These seven churches are real churches in the first century that were in what is now modern-day Turkey, what was back then called Asia Minor. And uh, the order in which it is read is the order that a courier or a postman would deliver each of these letters on his way through. Now, of course, each uh, church was not simply getting their single letter. They were getting the whole book of Revelation with their letter tied up in that. So each of them were reading each other's letters. 
and they were all to be delivered to each of them. But uh, John says here that it was on the Lord's day that he was in the Spirit. This is uh, a New Testament language for Sunday. Whenever you see the word the Lord's day, this is uh, the day that Jesus really took and owned as his own day. The first day of the week now becomes the Christian day of celebration and worship instead of the Jewish last day of the week. We are now starting our week with exaltation instead of working and then resting. We start with rest. We start with exaltation. Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. He appeared to his disciples continuously on Sundays. And uh, the Sunday was the day that he sent his spirit down in, in the power of Pentecost to birth the church. So that in the New Testament, the, the pattern went from meeting to gather and worship on the Saturday as the Jews did. The pattern moved more as the Gentiles were getting involved and as the, the Jewish Christians were finishing their Jewish worship and then gathering on the Sunday. The regular time of worship came to be known as the Sunday, what they called the Lord's Day. And this is when Jesus meets with John. John was in the Spirit, praying, relying on the Spirit, memorizing Scripture, praying to the Lord. He was doing something that counts as being in the Spirit, and it was on the Lord's Day, and Jesus came and met with him. The Lord's Day continues to be the day that Christ also meets with us and speaks to us, his covenant people, in a very particular way. Of course, we can pray to Jesus every day of the week. We can read our Bible and commune with Jesus every day of the week, wherever we are, and we should. But there is a significance in the communal gathering together in this covenantal meeting where Jesus is present with us in a particularly powerful way. This is foreshadowed by the fact that Jesus comes to Jesus on the Lord's Day. Sunday is the Lord's Day. It's the day of Christian worship. It's our New Testament Sabbath. And so I want to encourage you, I want to compel you to come expectantly on Sundays. The Lord's Day. Note the encouragement here. That Jesus, the enthroned, glorious, firstborn from the dead, ultimate prophet, priest, and king, speaks to his people. John wants his people to know that Jesus' heart is towards his people. There was a, there was a Puritan in the 1600s named Thomas Goodwin, and he wrote a book which was called, this is the, this is the whole title. The whole title was this. The heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners on earth. The gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his human nature, now in glory, toward his people under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin or misery. It didn't fit on the spot, no doubt. There, this, this was classic puritanical writing. He was writing about the fact that Jesus' heart, though in heaven, reaches out to us and loves his people dearly. Because the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father, in the throne room of heaven, a perfect, eternal, and sinless being, can be a pretty intimidating, daunting image, especially when you're at your weakest and feeling low. And yet Thomas Goodwin wrote that, that book, and it's a tremendous book, I encourage you to get it. He wrote it uh, uh, to let us know that while Jesus Christ is still bound to his human nature, like, while he is glorified, he is still in a human nature just like ours. And that he is our sympathetic high priest, Hebrews tells us. And he speaks to us in the midst of our tribulation, in the midst of our lives, and in the, uh, in the midst of our mission to give us tremendous comfort. Jesus, the exalted Lord, speaks to the churches. This is how we should view church. Every time that we come weekly with other kingdom people, we are coming to hear the voice of our king who speaks to us authoritatively 
through his word. This is why John says, do you see there in verse, uh, verse 10, he says that he heard a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, there's no unintentional words that John uses. He's using that word trumpet to describe Jesus' voice because the trumpet was what would, would declare a message from the king or an arrival of a king to a certain area. He's saying not just that there was a loud voice and it was kind of in a tenor sort of a sound and sounded a little bit brassy. He's not saying that. He's saying that this was a royal, triumphant, exuberant voice that was calling out to us. And this is how we should view the voice of Jesus that meets us every Lord's Day as we gather in the Spirit. When, uh, when James or whoever it is comes up, opens the Bible and does the call to worship. A reading of scripture to bring us under the call of the Spirit and under the authority of God's word. That is the trumpet sound announcing the beginning of the worship to the King. When we sing our songs together, not all of us are as confident as, each, as uh, uh, certain other people to sing loudly, but we ought to be. We ought to be working on that to sing together. In our singing, we are exalting Jesus as if we are directly before his throne. When we come and sit underneath the sermon, we are hearing him speak to us from his throne, through his word, through his appointed servants, the pastors. And when we have our doxology at the end, uh, it is a commission. In other words, a, a short section of scripture that basically reminds us to go and believe all that you have heard tonight and do all that you have been commanded tonight. That is how we should view the, the gathering of the, the Lord's saints in church. Jesus speaks to his churches, particularly for us. Jesus speaks to this church through the word. And thirdly, look at verse 12 through 17. The third point here tonight is that Jesus is objectively terrified. Verse 12. Then I turned to see that voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So while we've just spent a little bit of time reminding ourselves that we should be comforted by the fact that Jesus is our loving Savior, and that he speaks to us to comfort us from heaven, he is still according to John's description here, undeniably terrifying. Jesus was humble and lowly. He was gentle and meek, only for the 33 years of his earthly ministry, but now he is exalted. Now he is glorified. Now he is objectively terrifying. This imagery that we have here is a, is a mixture between um, uh, two visions that Daniel had, one was a judging warrior angel, and the other was judging what uh, was God in his throne of judgment over kings of earth. Daniel had these two visions, and John pretty much sees Jesus as a conglomeration, as a mixture of both of them. So, for example, in Daniel 7, Daniel sees God sitting in judgment, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. But we see John pick that up. 
In Daniel chapter 10, speaking of the judging messenger angel, Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, and his arms and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like a sound of a multitude. Well, we see all of those picked up also in Revelation chapter 1. So in other words, the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 here is a mixture of God sitting in judgment and the judgment angel that Daniel saw. So let's go through bit by bit, phrase by phrase, and see what John saw in Jesus standing before him on that day on the island of Patmos. First, he sees him clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Last week we were uh, reminding ourselves that Jesus fulfills the three roles of prophet, priest, and king from the Old Testament. This language here is very much priestly language. The, 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 the fine linen, the golden sash around the chest and the long robe, this is priestly clothing. So this is a reminder that as John is, especially as Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands, that was something that would, uh, uh, would be very familiar to anybody who had seen the inside of the temple, where the priests would go in and minister among all the lampstands, the golden lampstands and candles. So Jesus is here being represented as our priest. The one who, do you remember the role of the priest? The priest is somebody who represents us to God. He takes our sacrifice into the holy place where we cannot go, and he prays for us on the basis of the sacrifice that was made. Jesus is therefore being seen here as the one who atones for our sins as a priesthood. And so all of these things, every phrase that we're going to pull apart, relates somehow, gives some kind of significance to the fact that Jesus is writing letters to the church. So in here we see that the Jesus who is writing letters to the church is doing so as somebody who has atoned for our sins. He is writing to somebody, to, to a group of people, to a group of churches, to a kingdom of people that he has freed by his blood. He is writing as somebody who has a very heavy investment, in other words. right? He's not writing as somebody who is a disinterested party, who has no investment who has nothing to lose or gain in the, in the function of the church. He just wants to throw his two cents in and then walk away and doesn't really care about how it turns out. No, Jesus is writing as the one who represents us before our God in heaven. Number two, we see that his hair on his head will white like wool, like snow. Now, I could pick out somebody in the crowd who has the most gray hair and ask them to turn around, but I just wouldn't do that. Um, He'd he, he hit me. Uh, but, but in our day, we'll usually buy um, uh, uh, hair coloring and all sorts of things to, to hide the fact that our hair is going gray. But in the ancient world, gray hair was, was part of the glory of getting old. It was part of the, the thing that demanded respect from other people because it showed that you've done a few, few laps around the sun. You were very wise, you were aging, and especially when it was even going down into your beard. It was a great sign of respect and wisdom. When we're told here that Jesus has this white hair like snow, it's giving us these clues, because that is also picked up from uh, an imagery of God in the Old Testament. It's telling us that he is divine. It's that he is he's so old, he is eternal. He is eternally wise, he is the eternal God. And therefore, when he's writing these letters, he's doing so as the one who has all wisdom. 
and whose knowledge is from eternity. Okay? Have any of you had issues at church, at, at church not church, uh, at, uh, at, at work, maybe in the workplace, uh, uh, maybe, maybe on, on the work site? You've had an issue, and, and, and the brightest minds in the cohort are trying to figure something out, and then maybe the, the apprentice comes around, or the new guy who's been here for two days, or the guy who just rocked up late with a Starbucks in his hand comes onto the scene and just throws out his genius idea that everybody thought of about two hours ago already and we've long moved on from that but he just throws out his idea as uh, as something that is utterly worthless and not worth listening to you've been there i've been there it's annoying when somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about wants to have the say on everybody's problem well this is not how we should read jesus letters when jesus speaks to the church and let's be pretty fair he gets pretty specific pretty harsh and he nitpicks the bride and he's allowed to do that because he is the ancient of days he is the all-wise eternal god who loves us more than we can fathom he is eternally wise when he speaks anytime when we're going from next week onwards when we read something in the in the letters to the churches of revelation that stings us we think, oh, that's, that's harsh. But all churches do that. Oh, but we've always done it that way. We should always stop dead in our tracks and ask ourselves solemnly whether we are reckoning with the fact that those words were spoken by him who has all wisdom. Next, we see that his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is, this is symbolism to just be showing us that his eyes are piercing. They are seeing everything. His vision is clear and burns like fire. It's an imagery of his judgment. He sees sin. He sees the state of the church as she accurately is. Each and every individual in the church, and each individual church, Jesus sees with an x-ray-like vision to know very accurately what their problems are and what their sins are. And so again, when he writes to the churches, he does so as one who sees her faults and her, um, her strengths truly and accurately. I like this one. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This is the same imagery as we saw the warrior angel in Daniel chapter 10 have. The picture is that he has firm, unbreakable legs. That's pretty attractive to me. I wrote that down in my notes a couple of weeks ago and I got to it as I was reviewing my notes just this past week. I thought, that's, that's so ironic. I've just got to laugh. God's got a sense of humor. I wrote down uh, something about us, uh, our, our feet never being able to uh, be firmly planted enough. Well, as a guy with a shattered leg, it is extremely impressive to hear that Jesus is one whose legs are like burnished bronze. Now, I played rugby. I'd like to think that I took down a couple of guys who played in the team with a few guys who had legs like tree trunks and who had legs like burnished bronze. But here what we're seeing is Jesus is utterly immovable. He has these unbreakable feet with, with, with which he is not just planted firmly. He is not just standing his ground, but he is marching unstoppably. These feet are no longer able to be bitten by the serpent. He does not have soft uh, feet anymore. Rather, these feet are the feet that are crushing Satan's head underneath his heels. And so when he writes to his churches, and when he calls us to be overcomers, and when he calls his church to press on even to the point of death, when he calls them to stand firm on the doctrine of the gospel, he is writing as one who has already stood firm to the point of death himself, and he is writing as one who now stands firm and calls us 
to implement what he has already implemented. In other words, he's not like the overweight coach throwing pizza down his gullet as he tells you to do another lap. He's actually up to the standard that he is holding us to. He has already done what he is calling us to do. He is able to do what he is calling us to do. He is the one with the firm feet and calls us also to be firmly planted. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. I wonder if you've ever gone on hikes and stood under a waterfall, or if you've ever maybe even been overseas to some of the great, huge, torrential waterfalls that are well known around the planet. Or maybe in a, in a recent uh, flood or, or downpour of rain, you've been able to at least just sit somewhere near a large, gushing amount of water. It is a piercing, all-encompassing noise when, when, when water rushes loudly. It is the voice, in other words, when, when Jesus' voice is sounding like that, it is the sound of authority. It is the voice that drowns out every other voice. So when Jesus speaks these letters to his church, that he purchased by his own blood, he speaks as Lord. He speaks as authoritative senior pastor. And he speaks as the voice that drowns out every other voice. And we see here lastly that his from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This sword is his voice. We're seeing a double up here. The, the, the rushing waters is the sword that is coming out of his mouth. The, the sword is his voice. In Revelation 19, we have this amazing imagery of Jesus riding on a white horse. And it says, From his mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword which, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a glorious picture of Jesus Christ. But it is a symbolic picture of Jesus in his current status right now. He is spiritually, through the conquest of the church, riding across the nation, across the world, through the nations, and he is leading his church to victory. He is building his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. The sword that comes from his mouth is his voice in the scriptures. It is his absolute standing. It is absolute truth. And he judges people according to whether they accept or reject his truth in scripture. So again, the sword is his word and it is his tool for judging and ruling. So when Jesus writes these letters to the church, he writes as the judge of all. His pain is an enormous sword. This book, this Bible that we have here, is so much more, I hope we're realizing, it is so much more than just a bunch of good quotable verses and little phrases that look good on mugs and t-shirts. It is God's tool with which he judges the nations. And... He says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a, a often, a, a often used Old Testament imagery, which shows that the glory of God is shining so brightly that you can't look at it. Well, now what we see in the New Covenant age, now that the gospel has been revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the glory of God is on full display in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That in the face of Jesus Christ, as we understand the gospel, there is 
the entirety of the glory of God put on display for us. It is dazzling. It is fiercely shining. And so when Jesus writes to the churches and calls them to endure for the sake of the glory that they will receive in heaven, he does so as one who himself has gone through suffering and received great glory in heaven. Now verse 17, when we've looked through all of that in such detail, verse 17 makes a lot of sense. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John. This is the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend, who went told the Apostle whom Jesus loved. His buddy. He was used to resting his head on Jesus' shoulder at meals, but not anymore. Even John falls flat as if dead when he sees Jesus. So it is true that we must value the fact that Jesus speaks to us, and we must treasure the fact that Jesus loves us and comforts us, and yet we must not forget who it is that speaks. It is not the humble Jesus anymore. It is exalted, glorified, authoritative, terrifying Jesus. Look at the next verse, in verse 17 and on to 18. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, John, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Imagine that. Fear not. The voice that sounds like a trumpet and many waters says to John, fear not. John has no need to be afraid of Jesus, and neither do we. But the why determines whether or not you're a, you're a postmodernist escaping the truths of Scripture, or whether or not you're a Christian who understands the gospel. Why should we not be afraid of this terrifying, triumphant Jesus? It's not because he's not scary. It's not because we're not sinners before a holy God. It's not because we don't deserve death. It's not because he wouldn't justly be allowed to pour out hell onto every single one of us. It's not because of that. All of those things are true. That is why Jesus should be feared. But we as Christians must not fear Jesus because he has already died in our place and for our sins and now says to us, I'm alive, I died for you, I now have the keys to death and Hades. I choose who death swallows up. I choose whose soul is unlocked from the grave. There is no need to be afraid of Jesus, not because he's not terrifying, but because he is gracious and has lovingly died for every single person who draws to God through faith in him. He says, I am the first and the last. This means that he is the beginning and the end of salvation. All salvation is in him. If you have him, you have everything you need to escape death and the wrath of God and the trap of your sins. He says, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus has life in himself. He will always be the crucified one. He will always have the scars of the crucifixion in his body. He will always be known as the crucified Savior, but he will no longer be known as the dead Savior. He will never again be dead because he is alive forevermore. This is what the good news, the core message about of Christianity is all about. Now, maybe you're not a churchgoer, maybe you've been for a while, but you are not entirely clear on what the message of Christianity really is. It is this. It is that every single one of us are guilty and deserving of judgment before God because of our sins. 
and that God can rightly and justly and fairly send every single one of us to hell when we die because that is the only fair treatment of people who are as guilty as you and I. But in his love, God sent his son Jesus to this earth to take on a nature like ours, being human, and yet he was not sinful like us, so that he could fulfill all of the requirements that the law had put on humankind, so that he could please the Father in a human nature and to represent sinful humans. And then he went to the grave, he went to the cross, and threw the cross to the grave to die our death, to be cursed with our curse, to be killed with the killing that we deserved. He was buried with our sin into the grave and then resurrected on the Sunday free from sin so that our sin is left in the grave, so that our life is now hid with him, so that anybody and everybody who believes in Jesus and who refuses to try and earn their way to God, who refuses to reject God but instead bends the knee to God and says, I have sinned but I trust Jesus for salvation to every single one of those people who own Jesus Christ as Saviour and rest on Him alone, eternal life forevermore and freedom from death is given. And so even though we die in our physical bodies, we live. Because death is no longer punishment. For the Christian, death is no longer wrath from God. It's simply a passing into heaven. That's why the book of Revelation is just filled with Christians who sing their songs to Jesus as they're passing through the grave on their way to see their glorious Savior. Fear not death. Fear not Jesus. He is terrifying. But if you have faith in him, he is your life. And he will never let you see true death. So lastly, we come to this, this final point in verse 19 and 20. Jesus says, Write, John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven, star, uh, and the seven golden lampstands, well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Our final point here is that Jesus is amidst the churches. Jesus is standing there in all of his glory and he's holding seven stars in his right hand. He's standing in the middle of the lampstands like a priest would. And we're told that the stars in his hand are the angels, or the word can otherwise be translated, the messengers of each of the churches. Now, the reason I think we should translate that as messengers, which would be more equivalent of elders, the local pastors in each of those uh, uh, congregations, rather than thinking it literally means angels, is because it would be so strange for Jesus to give an angel a message to give to John, to give back to an angel, to give back to the church. I don't know why we're crossing these uh, dimensions so many times. Rather, it seems a lot more likely that, that uh, the elders, the pastors in the church, are being given this angelic name in order to emphasize their authority and their importance in the plan of Jesus Christ. So we see here that pastors are not free to teach whatever they wish. You may think that's a little bit self-important, John. The pastors, the elders are in the hands of Jesus. No, Jesus is terrifying. You didn't hear all of that? The pastors, the elders are held in a firm grip by Jesus Christ. They are not free to teach whatever they wish, to apply any authority that they wish, or to do whatever they wish. They are held accountable by him to teach his word 
to his people. However, there is an encouragement that they are not alone in this teaching. The word that they are preaching is coming out of Jesus' mouth first, and he holds them in his hand. It is as if the, the seven stars are the handle of the sword that comes out of his mouth, which he saves people with. Jesus is with the preaching elders in the churches. But not only are the pastors uh, the ones with this comforting and warning and terrifying picture of having Christ so close, but also each lampstand before Jesus symbolizes a church and Jesus is standing in their midst. Note that the church is the lampstand and not the lamp. So each of the seven churches of Revelation has a lampstand in the presence of Jesus. I think that we could extend that symbolism to say that, uh, uh, that in the imagery of the thing, every single true church on earth has a, has a, uh, has a lampstand in the presence of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to see next week in Ephesians, uh, in the letter to Ephesus, that when Jesus closes down churches for their faith, faithlessness, it is pictured as his, him putting away the lampstand. But note in the imagery that the church is the lampstand, the church is the actual gold candle holder, and not the candle or the lamp itself. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is the imagery of the lamp and the light and the fire in the temple. He is the candle. The church exists to hold up that spirit-empowered gospel witness. We're also told by Jesus that we are the light of the world. We do not hide the light, but rather uh, uh, share the light. We preach the light. We, we shine the light outwards. Well, we can make from all of this imagery that the church is the lampstand, and what we hold up is a spirit-empowered, flaming witness to Jesus Christ to the world. And so, Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He is the source of the power in the church. The source of gospel proclamation comes from Jesus. The source of strength comes from Jesus. The source of purity from sin. The source of the lampstand's light and proclamation is Jesus himself. In Jesus' presence and in the heavenly places, a lampstand, last week when we first started meeting here as, as Hope Gold Coast, a lampstand was erected in the presence of Jesus that we trust by the sovereignty of God will in no soon time go out. We trust that God will preserve us and use us and expand our influence to the glory of Jesus, that this lampstand will stand strong, proclaiming and shining the light of the glory of Jesus in the gospel. Whoever the pastor is, whoever is ordained to take on the long-term teaching ministry here, Whoever the people are, whatever the makeup of the membership is, whatever the deaconship are, whoever the, the families are, whoever is here, whoever is not here, whoever Jesus adds, whoever Jesus removes, what gives this church its power is that Jesus is here. Whatever the size of the church is, whatever the size of the band, whatever the budget and whatever the functional capacity of the church, the thing that gives this church this church that you're a part of, such power is the fact that Jesus is in our midst now by his Holy Spirit and he's ministering to us by his word through his angel in the right hand of the Son of Man. So here's how you need to respond. Your obedience from understanding this onwards means that you will now think of the church in a glorious, wonderful, treasured uh, way. 
that Jesus loves the church, treasures the church, died for the church, now speaks to the church, so you also will treasure and love and serve the church. Some people need to find a way to serve the church physically and so that other people can be welcomed in more and more. Others, though, are not yet Christians. Others, though, have not had freedom from sin. You have not had the, the forgiveness of your sin and you are still condemned. To you, this glorious, triumphant, terrifying Jesus welcomes you on the, on the merit of his own blood. He's not calling you to shed your blood. He's not calling you to die. He's not calling you to be punished. He has done all of those things for you. Now he calls and commands you with all of his authority. Come and be forgiven. Come and trust in him. Meet him. Be reconciled to your God. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that the word of God points us to Jesus. Because in him is glory. In him is triumph. In him is salvation. In him is the gospel shining bright. We thank you, Lord God, that in this passage tonight we've been able to see that we are sinners, that we have every reason, humanly speaking, to fear you, to run from you, to be cast out from your presence, to be, to be punished by you, and yet we see it in the mercy and the, and the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has died for us and that he is now alive forevermore, that he can save anybody who comes to God through him. We thank you, Lord God, for that great, great message of mercy. I pray that anybody here tonight who has not yet known Jesus savingly, maybe they have known him by name, maybe they have known him through tradition or culture or family, maybe they have known of him, but Lord, those who do not know him personally, those who, if they died tonight, would be sent to hell in punishment, would you please give to their hearts faith? Would you please give to them new hearts that can believe and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who died for their sins? Would you please add them to our number so that we can baptize them and see them grow as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we pray, as each of us Christians think about the church, we pray that you would, you would increase the estimation of the local church. You would increase the, the amount that we think about and, and desire to serve and be involved in the ministry of the local church because it is the most significant thing that is in existence in this earth today. It is purchased and established by the blood of Jesus. May you grow us to your glory. May you purify us to, to our joy. In the name of Jesus, everybody said.